Welcome to episode 13 of Elves, Rings, and Nerdy Things. I'm your co-host, Sam, here with my other co-host, Sean. Sean, how you doing? Doing well. Just watched the U.S. men's national team draw against Wales, which was a huge bummer, but happy that we're back in the World Cup. So there's the silver lining. It's not a total embarrassment. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, My sports thing is the continued decline of my fantasy football team and the harrowing adventures of Michigan college football. Yeah, I am for those who, I don't know if we've talked about our fantasy football league that we're both a part of, but I am on the quest for my three-peat back-to-back-to-back league champ. And it's looking like I'll make the playoffs, but we'll see. Uh, I just don't want to give you the trophy, Sam. Yeah, well, you know, I started off strong, and uh, I've hit some stumbles over the past couple weeks with, just couldn't put it together. The thing that really gets me is that in our head-to-head and in the game that I played technically yesterday, because all my players are done, but the week hasn't wrapped up, I had all the points I needed to win on the bench, and it was just a matter of picking the starters, and uh, so there's nothing you can complain about when you're the, when when you're picking the starters. When it's you, yeah. When it's you, yeah. Anyway, that's not what people are here for. People are here for our nerdy fantasy content, not fantasy football. So this is Elves, Rings, and Nerdy Things. We are talking about the Legend of Vox Machina animated show in the preparation for season two. Go to Elves, Rings, Nerdy Things on Facebook. Send us an email, things at gmail.com. Please continue to like, rate, subscribe, share this podcast with your friends and family. Shout out to any any new listeners who've come aboard, especially any critters who have found us. Welcome. Please go back, listen to our catalog if you so desire. We have spread into Oceania. We have some listeners in Australia, so thank you for jumping on. And some more Asian listeners. I saw a couple downloads in India and a couple in South Korea. So Interesting. We've gone very international. Yeah. More and more global as we record. Well, I know that there are some, um, there's a lot of critters in Australia, from what I understand. There's an Australian crit roll shop, so there has to be. There must be. There All right, well, be. that's good. Spread us around down under, mate. It's and their summer, right? So There go our there Australian go. <laughs> See you later, Australia. <laughs> uh, uh, hello, New Zealand, baby. <laughs> yeah, Kiwis, let's do it up. If we shit on Australia enough, maybe some yeah. Kiwis will jump on. Yeah, so thank you to all the new listeners, especially listening to uh, listening to us wherever you are out in the world. Uh, claimer, or excuse me, spoilers, disclaimer for the uh, Legend of Vox Machina show, the live stream, uh, all of the content related to Critical Role uh, for this. And then before we jump into the episode recaps, I need to voice a complaint that has been brewing for some time. And today it really came to a head. I was doing my rewatch, Amazon Prime Video does not have an intuitive 
or user-friendly interface. So I was going in and all I wanted to do was re-watch an episode from the beginning. And it kept thinking that I wanted to watch the final five seconds of the credits before starting the next episode, the episode after the one that I wished to watch. And there is no just start from beginning button. Yes, there is. No, there's not. Not on my you, display. You ready for this? Uh-huh. Because I figured it out today when I was re-watching the episodes as oh, well. Okay, you've got more patience than I do then. On your remote. Well, on the screen, on the screen itself, it says there's like an options button and it says, press this on your remote. I click that. And on those list of options, one of them is start from beginning. I was not watching on my TV using a remote. I was watching on the, um, on the, on my computer. So that could have been it, but I'll, I'll go back and I'll dig. I will say this, my complaint about watching Amazon prime stuff on the, on TV is that the interface is so slow I never have confidence that the button I thought I pushed, I actually pushed. So I have to give everything five or 10 seconds to load, which my internet otherwise is perfectly fine. I've never had an issue with my connection speed or my cable box or anything like that. So this is seems to be an issue with Amazon Prime, which doesn't make any sense because they own all the servers in the world and seemingly could probably solve this problem if they wanted to. So Jeff, whoever else you got over there, put some more servers in and fix this user user interface in this customer experience. I'll say Jeff before you Jeff Bezos longtime fan of the show. Uh before you <laughs> fix Sam's issue with the uh customer service interface of Prime Video. Uh please fire your writers for Rings of Prime. <laughs> and there was a, so there was a post cuz Amazon just laid off a whole bunch of workers and someone either tweeted which RIP Twitter. It was either a tweet or a Facebook post that I saw somewhere. But someone was joking. It was like, if the five writers of Rings of Power are not in the 10,000 layoffs, <laughs> it's not even worth laying people off. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I understand your frustration. It took me a minute to figure it out. And you would think that if Hulu, Netflix, and all these other streamers can have a much easier interface that Prime Video would want to jump on that train. But yeah. Yeah. It's not that hard. And I don't care if all of my streaming things have the same features, if those are the features that people want and that I want. Anyway, this is not a podcast about the experience of accessing streaming media. It's about the response to it. So in this episode, we are going to recap the final three episodes of the Legend of Vox Machina animated show. So let's jump right into it. Uh, I will start it off with episode 10 titled The Depths of Deceit. So the episode opens with Percy pointing his gun at the woman in the jail cell that they have dis- that they have discovered in the basement of the castle in Whitestone. We see that through flashbacks, this woman committed crimes against the Dorolo family, assisted with the murder of the Dorolos, shot Cassandra Dorolo full of arrows, tortured Percy for information about Whitestone. Her identity is revealed to be Dr. Anna Ripley. We have Percy opening, pointing his gun at her. Cassandra intervenes and convinces Percy not to, to shoot Dr. Ripley, but to spare her and to free her and to try to get information about uh, the Briarwood's plans from her. So they decide, they decide to do that. During this confrontation, smoke had billowed out of Percy. Scanlan expresses concern about the smoke. This prompts Pike, the priest, to 
sense or cast a spell on Percy to try to reveal what's happening, she detects a presence of evil clouding his soul. And she says that he should be brought to a temple. They move on from that. Don't really entertain that suggestion. Again, we mentioned that Percy spares Ripley. And then she mentions the ziggurat at underneath Whitestone Castle and something about a ritual or how it fits into the plans of the Briarwoods. During the process of freeing her and and bringing her with the party, Percy discovers that Ripley has a prototype gun in her possession, which looks similar to Percy's gun. The We then cut to the Whitestone villagers attacking the castle and fighting the Pale Guard, the, the castle guards who work for the Briarwoods. As they are making their way to the ziggurat underneath Whitestone Castle, Scanlan takes the opportunity to hit on Cassandra, which uh, prompts Percy to put him in his place. We then get to a point where Ripley's presence not only reveals the uh, passageway to get to the ziggurat, but then she also saves Percy from a trap that she had set up. The party finds themselves in a small crypt, which contains the remains of Cassandra and Percy's relatives. The corpses have been reanimated by Delilah Briarwood and attack the party, and the party has to fight the Dorolo family, although none, it's not the Cassandra and Percy's parents or siblings, but older other relatives. They finish that fight and continue moving on. Scanlan suggests that they go back to Amon with proof of the Briarwood's true nature, but that suggestion is denied. The party discovers a facility that was used to refine Whitestone into a substance called residuum, which is a magical powder. While they are investigating this facility, Cassandra's name appears on Percy's gun, which up to this point has only contained the names of people that he intends to kill. He looks up and he sees that Cassandra is standing at the doorway to the chamber. She pushes a button and the doorway, the door starts to close. Vaxeldan sprints, runs, jumps, and slides underneath the door just as it closes. The Briarwoods appear from behind Cassandra and now Vax. She says that she is a Briarwood now. Vax goes to attack the Briarwoods, but is charmed or dominated by Silas. And then the last thing that Vax does before walking off with the Briarwoods and Cassandra is to hit a button, which opens a flow of acid into the room, putting all the party in danger. They're trying to stop the acid. They need Percy's help, and he is in a state of shock. Scanlan summons his hand, and they levitate away from the acid. Vex gets Percy to snap out of his state of shock. Scanlan raises the party higher on the Scanlan's hand using a heavy metal riff to do so. Utilizing Percy's engineering knowledge and the power of teamwork, they shut off the acid, drain the acid pool, cut back to the Briarwoods who are at the ziggurat, and they mention the need for sacrifices for their upcoming ritual and say that they have two, indicating that Vax and Cassandra are both on the slaughtering block. And that's it for episode 10. That's where we cut off. So, Sean, what did you think? I liked it for the most part going through my, well, I'll start with the uh, fighting the dead relatives. Yeah. The Cassandra saying, Uncle Nathaniel really got me on the first listen around. And then you had a comment in there with Grog, like a kid in a candy shop. Oh, my God. Grog. And I think this was a, they really needed to inject a little bit of humor because otherwise this, this episode is really kind of a downer, right? You've got the tense stuff in the beginning. You've got the kind of betrayal scene at the end. There's a little bit of humor there, but this, this fight 
very low stakes. We're not worried about the party fighting some zombies. So you get the humor of the Uncle Nathaniel and then Grog smashing people together and basically dancing as bones fall Ball to the down. ground. Yeah, it was great. It was fun. Seeing Ripley with a gun. I think this is the first time Percy realizes that there's somebody else with the weapon. Mm-hmm. And seeing when Pike does that detect evil. I loved the imagery. Well, all three of these episodes, the imagery of magic yeah. in these three was phenomenal. And I know we're going to talk about it more in the next episode yeah. that we talk about. But at least in this one, when she cast Detect Evil and we see like the billowing flames and smoke coming off of Percy, just cool representation of Pike just being like, oh, well, let's see if something's wrong. And then she casts that spell and she goes, oh, yeah, something's really fucking wrong. Yeah. And you know that's it's so much more effective than again in a in a Dungeons and Dragons game to get that type of image would be very challenging, and a lot of times it's just be like you detect an evil presence. But it's so much more entertaining to see it visualized like that with the flames yeah. and the smoke and the music. Yeah, it was it was that was really effective. You also had a note here about the Cassandra's name appearing on the gun. Yeah, I thought it was a cool way to show. To not show us her deceit, but to have Percy look down at the weapon and then see her name. And then that's his realization that she's betraying him. I thought that was cool imagery, both for us and the character in the moment, because we also are discovering that the same time Percy is. Mm -hmm. So that was a cool touch. I enjoyed that. And then I have one. I finally have a qualm or another qualm. All right. That carries over from the last episode when Pike was mass blessing all of the weapons. We see in this episode, it's like hours later, and all of those villagers still have holy weapons that they're using to fight the Pale Guard. Now, is it nitpicking? Yes. But how strong of a spell did she cast? They're not that high of level. Yeah, I I mean... does it Does it really matter? No. But still just D&D rules that it gets to a point where if it's too blatantly wrong or what I interpret or deem as wrong, that's going to, the, the D&D side of the DM side of me is going to be taken out of it for just a brief moment. And I was for a moment, but then I was, I was back into it. I, uh, I noticed that too. And it's, it, it occurred to me that you, they don't even really need the enchanted weapons at that point because the holy weapons are useful against the undead but yeah. the people they're fighting are just the regular human guards. So you could have just, if you wanted there to be stakes for the villagers, because you want to, as the audience, you want to rem- you want to remind the audience that Vox Machina needs to solve this now because there are other lives at stake. Well, you could have had them continuing to fight undead and then showed at the end of the episode that the undead just like all of a sudden die when Delilah is incapacitated or something like that. And it, it it would have worked just as well as this thing because they don't even f- cut back to the pale guard and the villagers fighting. We just at the you see couple yeah you, you get the one charge and then that's it. That's it. Yeah, you don't you don't see how that fight progresses. You don't see there's no there's all the drama is with the party, which as it should be. So yeah, I I mean I you acknowledge this as a nitpick. I would agree, but yet there's there are other ways it could have done it to be both less nitpicky and then even maybe slightly ratcheted up the drama. Yeah, I'll I'll say my my nitpick for this episode was the Percy and Ripley 
relationship. Just it got a little it it moved quickly. It moved dramatically, and by dramatic, I, I just mean it, it moved. It was amplified very quickly. There were so many occasions where he pulled the gun on her and threatened her. And I think this is maybe the first time where adapting multiple episodes of the live stream hurt them. Hurt them, yeah. Because in in the in the live stream, the scenes with Ripley are spread out over a couple a couple episodes, which are all multiple multiple hours long. And one of the reasons why is because the combats and the encounters take a really long time. And so the the crypt fight, the navigating to the ziggurat, there were really long conversations about how to do all this, really long combat encounters. And here, everything moves very quickly. And so you have to go, you go from discovering her in the cell to freeing her, to her saving Percy, to them all working together. And then we're, it's the relationship. I mean, this little bit of a jumping ahead to the next episode, then she just leaves. Right. And I got a little tired of him pointing the gun at her and having the same speech over and over again. But it, yeah, it was very much, oh, I don't trust you. I'm going to kill you. Okay. I'm going to let you live. Oh, you saved me. But uh, I'm going to point my gun at you and say it's easier to have you walk in front of me than behind me. Yeah. And it just like got to the point where it was like, okay, how, <laughs> how many times? Yeah. We get it. You don't trust her. But and, and the thing is, we we don't even they include the the gun prototype, but we then don't. It's not established that Ripley even knew that Percy was making a gun. Like there's there's a mystery here about how she makes also the gun. knows about guns. Yeah. yeah, in the I think in the background of the live stream, and then I think this is in the comics. I can't remember because I I haven't read them all and read them in a while. I think. Technically, Ripley captured Percy after he'd already left Whitestone and after he invented the gun. And that's how she got the ideas. Like she traveled around during her time with the Briarwoods in Whitestone and she eventually re-encountered re- re- Percy. But they don't explain how she got the gun prototype in the show. They and make- you, would think, you would think Percy would be more shocked by seeing the remnants of her a gun in her bag. Yeah. She does say something along the lines of we're both engineers or something like that. Yeah. And then they, they reinforce that with her, the, you know, saying how she was the one who designed that trap and she knows how to, or she, you know, she assists with shutting off the acid using her engineering knowledge. So it's like, I, I believe that much, but then would they also make it clear that the gun is not wholly the design of Percy? There's another, mm-hmm. there's another entity at play that gives him the ideas. And then, so how did, how did Ripley have those similar notions without any sort of prolonged involvement with the entities that created the gun, which in the live stream, we kind of, you know, I think it's, that's established. Then we come back to it and then jumping ahead, we do get a little bit of foreshadowing that we, this is maybe not the last time we're going to see Dr. Ripley. Now let's get into that uh, acid scene. Yeah. I think, well, basically you, you took one of the lines that I was going to put in when I was reading the notes. So I'll let you cover that, but Grog diving through it and swimming and being simultaneously burned and healed. Like that would be, have to be the worst torture ever to be able to swim and as you're swimming, have these acid burns, and then those burns are being healed at the same time. It just seems so <laughs> gnarly. Yeah. Uh, but 
it's a D&D mechanic. You take however D6 per round. So every six seconds, he would be taking damage. And as long as he's in range from Pike, Pike could be constantly healing him. So it's one of those where it would totally work in the rules. Like he could, he could have survived in the acid as long as he could hold his breath. I would assume Mm -hmm. as long as Pike's there constantly pumping uh, healing magic into him. But, and it's not like she needs to be healing him for the exact amount that he's being damaged by the acid. It just needs to be enough to forestall death death and as yeah. a barbarian he i i don't know if rage protects you from acid damage it might just be the physical melee damage at least at probably at lower levels i i haven't yeah. checked that out in a while but either way you, you that 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 specific type of the rule wouldn't necessarily be there so you could say it's a combination of you know his just natural naturally strong barbarian talents and being healed at the same time allows him to swim through this acid which they already established in a pretty gnarly way how quickly it can just destroy things because it Oh, is that rat? The rat. Yeah, the rat. This there are rats in the acid reservoir before the acid starts flowing, and a couple, and one of them is like half dissolved and and pulling itself away, and it eats through wood and eats through leather, and yeah, it's it. They established the threat of the acid really well. So <laughs> again, with humor with Grog, he he swims through this acid to shut things off, to shut off the the flow and to drain the acid from the room pike is healing him the whole time after the acid drains out she heals him some more and there's a little bit of dialogue about his captain winky which he's concerned about and and the best part of this is he's naked the entire time because he did have the forethought to take his clothes off before jumping in the acid (laughs) so just great scene i mean we talked about this multiple times prior to this but really good way to inject some humor uh, into the scene and and really use that use that humor to kind of re- release the tension at the end. And then what was the the final thing with the acid is the Scanlan's hand. Uh, whatever you have in your notes for acid. Uh, so we talked about the rats. We talked about Grog. And then the final thing which happens at this at this time is Scanlan. He casts Scanlan's hand, which everybody jumps onto, and he can levitate them off the ground. But they need to go even higher to escape the acid and then to turn off the acid spigot. And to do so, he needs to cast a stronger spell. And so he pulls out a heavy metal riff, which is I'm kind of interpreting that as like a combination of like a concentration and a performance check, which would allow you to temporarily exceed the bounds of the spell normally. And I'm just thinking as a DM, I would totally allow that in a situation like this, where if you roll above a certain number, you can temporarily increase the power of your spell in order to you know accomplish this specific need and then i think i saw something behind the scenes about that that riff i think it was written by jason charles miller who's done a lot of music for critical role and uh at the beginning of the of production i think sam regal went to him and said i want scanlon to at one point have a heavy metal riff and jason charles miller was like all right i'll write it and he wrote a great one it was fun i liked having a they use different musical genres with Scanlon at Mm -hmm. different times. And I noticed after this first episode, episode 10, that at the outro of every episode of Fox Machina is different. And this one had that heavy metal uh, feel to it as it was wrapping up. But I didn't realize that until this one, that each one is different. And there was an episode, the one where Cassandra gets her throat slit, I believe. And it ends on that cliffhanger. The outro music to that is very 
somber and mm-hmm. dramatic. Yeah, just a nice little added touch for the did, showrunners. Did is the the episode with the anal beads song? Is that the outro song for that episode? And is it is it like a more f- extended version than what we get in the show? So I think it's the same outro music every time. It just has a different like feel oh, to it. Oh, okay, okay. So this one was heavy metal outro. The one with Cassandra was sad. I'm sure it was more of like a disco <laughs> for the anal beats okay, episode. Okay. Well, the final thing that I had, I don't know if there's anything else that occurs to you uh, about this, is when the party first discovers the residuum, Scanlan makes a comment about, oh, it's a uh, drug lab or something like that. And he co- makes a comment about, oh, you know, we, we could you know, make a bunch of money on this or something like that. Or does anybody have like a pipe to smoke it? I don't know if this is just an allusion to the live stream or maybe foreshadowing of Scanlan's character, but in the, in the live stream, Scanlan does develop a drug habit as a result of some of the trauma that he goes through and he's trying to cope with it. Uh, And there's an interesting mechanic in the game or in the, in the live stream where he does the drugs and he, he can do different things with his spells, but it has some other negative consequences. Um, So that was something just maybe a little bit of a, little bit of a teaser or a little fan service for folks that are familiar, but maybe something we'll see more of in the future. Yeah. And I have a teaser that I heard on the next episode as well. Oh, okay. Well, let's go ahead and do that. Do you want to do the recap for this? Sure. All right. Episode 11, Whispers at the Ziggurat. Briarwoods at the top of the Ziggurat. Delilah checks alignment of the stars as she's waiting for the solstice to begin. She performs an incantation. Scanlan, Pike, and Keyleth uh, begin to figure out what's going on, that the book, the journal, was an instruction manual for summoning the Whispered One. Ripley asks Percy to leave with her. He declines. She leaves on her own, which bothered Sam. He can't shoot her because it would give them away. But Percy struggles with the entity that seemingly possesses him. The party attacks, but are rebuffed as Vax fights Vex and Cassandra fights Percy. Grog is knocked down, Keyleth is knocked out, and Scanlan is silenced by Delilah, stopping him from being able to cast his spells. Cassandra unloads her resentment and anger on Percy, mentions her faith in the Whispered One. I believe she says a line, our blood is his blood, something along those lines. Pike, in her astral form, then fights Silas and saves Scanlan. The party is at a low point. Everyone is losing. Keyleth talks to the sun tree and asks for help, which she receives. She casts a daylight spell, which weakens Silas, allowing Vax to shake off domination and Cassandra as well. Pike overcomes Delilah, breaking the silence on Scanlan. Grog then gets to fight Silas one more time, saving Keyleth while she's still casting her daylight spell. Silas cuts him up and tries to dominate him. But Grog closes his eyes and swings wildly. He hits Silas and then grabs him, holding him as the daylight spell takes effect. Scanlan silences Delilah as she tries to save Silas. Keyleth powers up her spell and destroys Silas, which breaks the domination on Cassandra even further. Delilah runs to the top of the ziggurat, talking to the Whispered One in a creepy inner chamber that has like these corpses writhing on the walls. Delilah then begins another blood ritual 
as she cuts up her arm. Vox Machina opens the door and attacks her. She fends off the attack initially. Vex hits her with an arrow and she casts a spell at her. Keyleth jumps in front and falls to the ground after being pierced through her chest by dark magic. We get a glimpse of the Whispered One before green lightning envelops the ziggurat, the sun tree, and disperses over Whitestone. The corpses on the wall fall still. The Whispered One disappears and a spinning orb is left where he stood. Pike's holy form fades and she wakes up back at the temple. Percy shoots Delilah as Keyleth lies dying. So that was a pretty eventful episode. This is the one that I remember listening to during the stream that I was, I was listening to it at work while I was working and I had to stop because I wanted to actually watch Mm. the combat. So I went back home after work so I could watch the miniatures moving around the board. But yeah, great. This is one of their biggest uh, first battles. Yeah. And you mentioned watching the fight and watching the miniatures. So for those listeners who don't maybe aren't familiar with D and D, a lot of times when people play, they include a map of the setting, the different rooms or the different areas where, where the characters are either fighting or dealing with some sort of encounter. And that was true for the live stream of this game. And this was so early on that this was still just little miniature characters fighting on chart paper. Matt Mercer, the dungeon master, would draw the different terrain features and buildings and rooms on graph paper, and they would move around, and it would all be very particular. And oh, I move, you know, five feet this way and ten feet that way, and I, you know, I'm in range to cast the spell and things like that. In later episodes, Matt increased the sophistication of his miniature setup to the point where he would have whole. He would construct out of styrofoam and you know buy different pieces and it would you'd have the entire setting it'd have three dimensional space on it for flying encounters and all this stuff and I just wish that he had had that that type of um, early on early on because this would have been so cool to see the ziggurat on on a mini board with uh, with the you know different terrain and you know all the tiles and all the space but yeah this was. I remember yeah. this fight was so, so fun to listen to. I, I didn't watch it live, but yeah. And I assume if you're interested in knowing what he used, I'm pretty sure it's Dwarven Forge. I think that's so. What, that's what they keep using. Yeah. But yeah, you can create like a town square with structures that you can take the roof off and have your miniatures go into them. Now, Critical Role has incredibly elaborate uh, miniature maps that they use whenever there's a battle scene. So it just makes it more engaging for fans to be able to visualize and see. But yeah, still fun originally when you see where we started and then where we're at now. It's impressive how far Critical Role has come. One thing from the fight that didn't transition to this, when Silas is destroyed by the Sunbeam in the stream, I believe they see like his shadowy form slither away i don't recall i'm almost positive i know so let's let's get technical for a second if we can with the mechanics of the vampire in dungeons and, and I, dragons 
And I'm going to Google it while you're getting technical. Oh, okay. While so, I'm also listening, I won't be ignoring you. I trust your multitasking abilities. So I think what happens in Dungeons and Dragons when you kill a vampire, and there might be like a certain certain threshold of damage where this happens, the vampire takes a mist form and immediately moves back toward its coffin grave where if it makes it there it can then regenerate however while they're in mist form they can still take damage and if they are brought to zero hit points in mist form they are destroyed completely destroyed i think that's what happened with silas in that encounter because of the power of the spell that keyleth cast and its duration i might be wrong it's been some time since i've listened to that episode but he does come back spoiler alert he does come back at a certain point and attack the party many episodes in the future. And I think at that point, he might have been raised by Vecna. But Sean, what did your quick research yeah. discover? If you're ready for this, in the episode Race to the Ziggurat, which is episode 34 of Campaign 1, Percy ends up dropping Silas to zero hit points with a shot to the chest. Okay. He then drops to mist form. Okay which Keyleth destroys using the sunbeam. Okay. So a little different in our episode. I wish they would have kept that mist form mechanic mm. just because it shows that he might not be truly dead. You know what I mean? Just like that little bit of suspense, but I don't know. See the, the visual of him in Grog's arms being turned to dust and then kind of blowing away in the wind. That was still pretty cool, though. And I, I think mist, the mist form might have confused people who aren't familiar with the D&D mechanic or that, like, I don't, I don't even know if that is a common enough thing about vampires. Like, if that's even based in, like, the folklore or the Dracula novels or the Dracula interpretations. It's all, I think people would think more, why did he turn into a bat and fly away or something like that, right? Um, mm -hmm. I, I liked it. And then the Briarwoods and the Whispered One. I think we used the term Vecna a couple times in our discussion of this. Yeah, you and I have. Let's establish for the, our listeners that in the in this show, The Legend of Vox Machina, they referred to an entity called the Whispered One. And I in this episode, they describe the Whispered One as an undead entity that's trying to come back into this world. And that's what this ritual was going to do, is going to bring the Whispered One into the world. And that's why you had to have the, the right alignment. So the barriers between the different planes of existence were weakened. In the live stream, this was also the case. And the whispered one or the, was I, maybe that was the term used. There was a couple different names used to refer to an entity called Vecna, which is a classic Dungeons and Dragons villain, high level threat, God level entity, who is the undead magic user god of secrets and dark magic things like that so a very very evil entity but i'm sure they don't have the rights for that and so they couldn't use vecna the name in the show so instead we have the whispered one so if we use, if we use vecna we mean the same thing as what the show calls the whispered one don't they end up using the term vecna though in critical role on the live stream they did but i don't know i don't think in legend of vox machina they're going to i think there, there's too much at stake we'll see i'd be interested now like, that well, now that 
critical role. I mean, the Taldori Reborn campaign setting, Wildmount, those are uh, Wizards of the Coast books now. So I don't know. I guess we'll see. I, I wouldn't um, be surprised if they're allowed that to use the term just because they're basically business partners now. We're we're past the camp the Taldori campaign setting that Matt published years ago mm-hmm. was an independent book. It wasn't endorsed by Wizards of the Coast. So I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. I, I could imagine that there's something in the license where depictions of Dungeons and Dragons content has to be created. Like, you know, I don't think Wizards of the Coast is getting a cut of the Legend of Ox Machina deal. And if they wanted to use trademarked, the folks of Critical Role wanted to get those trademarks, they would have to give Wizards a cut of the of the deal. And they probably they just probably don't want to do that. And maybe Wizard is thinking, Wizards of the Coast is thinking, we'll make our own content at some point. I could see, mm-hmm. I could see that either way. But nonetheless, let's, what are you gonna say? I was gonna say, let's talk magic now. Let's talk magic, because both I think both of us have this like depiction of magic in this episode is really a high point of it. So I, what's I what have... stood out for you? I was going to let you go first, but I will gladly go first if you yeah, got I'll... got the word in first. Yeah. Uh, for me, there were two instances. The silent spell. This is another D&D mechanic. The silent spell cast on Scanlan, who primarily sings for his magic. Him not being able to cast spells because he can no longer make the verbal components to his spells. It's one of those rules where Matt as the DM knows what he's doing and knows how the rules work. And I don't think Sam in the moment realized. So after the silent spells cast on him, I'm sure in the stream, he tried to cast something and Matt goes, "Uh, uh, uh, (laughs) you can't talk. You can't cast that spell. And it was cool to see that carry over in the game. I liked the effect of having like that purplish, shade all the way Mm -hmm. around him to show that he was silenced i liked the witch bolt which i believe was a witch bolt that hit keyleth at least that's my guess as to the spell i thought it might have been finger of death just because of seemingly the high amount of damage that it caused but i I guess i i guess i looked at it more as they've been fighting so long she was probably super weak anyway so one little spell could have just offed her yeah yeah but at least I came away thinking it was Witch Bolt. But then more or less, just how much time had did they spend on all of these magical effects? Like the illustrators at Titmouse had to have been how many hours alone in just magical effects do you think went into this yeah. show? Well, all of the all of the lightning, all of the dark magic that Delilah uses, the light energy that Keyleth and Pike are firing off. It's yeah, this episode is really heavy with magical effects, but what that's what you got to expect when you get to this massive climactic battle. The notes that I have about this, I agree with this representation of silence. I thought it was really great where the audience can still hear Scanlan, but it's, he's really muffled and, and really quiet, which is a great way to kind of layer on top of the fact that he was outlined in that purple and black, the mm-hmm. daylight and daylight and sunbeam spells that Keyleth cast. I thought that was really good representation. Her kind of tapping into the strength of the sun tree. I can't remember if that happened in the live stream or not. Do you? I know. If there, so was, there was any sort of interaction with the with the sun tree 
in that moment, not, or if it was just all taking moment. place under the roots of the. Yeah, so there was the scene when they're hiding out with the resistance, and Keyleth does something to the sun tree where she basically sets it on fire. She tries and, to heal it with daylight and burns it instead. <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. But then they get attacked in the tunnel by like these mist creatures. Those are vampires. I remember oh, that because that was yeah because uh, there was a great scene which maybe we could have gotten in this where. I, there's one one of the vampires is brought to really low hit points and then Scanlan pees on it and he makes an argument that well vampires are hurt by running water so technically peeing on it should do it damage and I think Matt gives it to him and lets him kill the vampire yeah, by, by, peeing, by huh? peeing on it yeah and, and that <laughs> was fun because that, that was like a creepy encounter in the basement of this old tavern that they were hiding out in yeah, yeah they thought they were safe yeah yeah the other thing that I liked was the the domination effect. And this is another one of those abilities that exists in Dungeons and Dragons. Vampires have the ability to take control of people. This is, I, I think, something that is based on the depiction of vampires in uh, the original Bram Stoker, uh, Drac- Bram Stoker's Dracula, and then other, ad- other representations of that. Here in D&D, if the vampire that's doing the domination then attacks one of the dominated person's allies that I think the domination either breaks or has a chance to break. And we saw that at one point where Cassandra was fighting Percy and then Silas comes over and attacks Percy and that snaps Cassandra out of her state for a second. And then Silas turns around and and his eyes, uh, you know, flash and her eyes flash and she's back to being dominated, which I, I thought that was fun. And then uh, obviously the massive damage that Silas takes at the end kind of breaks those dominations. We do get a depiction, I think, of uh, mass cure wounds when they're at the top of the ziggurat and Pike momentarily says, you know, hey, everybody, you know, here, here's some healing or something like that. And everybody glows for a second, which is a nice representation of trying to get your get your party back up after having that big fight. Yeah. And then that was I think that was pretty much it for the notable spells and abilities that they depicted. And one more of Grog when he is about to get dominated one more time and he shrugs it off and then he closes his eyes because he knows that he needs to see him to be able to uh, cast dominate or control person, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. But he (laughs) closes his eyes and then just starts swinging wildly, which demonstrates the attacking with disadvantage because he can't, see what he's doing and then one of them luckily hits and he rolls high enough but Mm -hmm. i just love that line from grog uh don't try to seduce me yeah that was great the line from silas takes him away takes him aback for a moment and goes well i'm not so what i'm trying to do i think i i think travis willingham co-wrote this episode too which is fun because i think grog has another funny moment later with him he says like real men hug or something like that when he grabs Silas and holds him in the in the sunbeam. That yeah. was fun. Another thing that I noted here was when Delilah is she does a couple of incantations at the top of the ziggurat. And in one of them, she uses the phrase Thar Amphala. And then in another one, she uses the word Entropis. And both of those are references to both uh locations and episodes in the live stream named after those locations that have to do with the Whispered One. I think Tharamphala is a city that exists in another plane of existence. 
and Entropis is a tower within that city, um, both of which the party does visit at a point further on in their adventures. Uh, so that was a fun little Easter egg. Which is also a reason why you need to watch the show with closed captions, because I wouldn't have caught those references had I not been reading yeah. the text as it's happening. Because it's in there with a bunch of other gibberish uh, or things that could sound like gibberish. But if you if you can discern those specific terms, you can connect it back to the to the live stream. And then um, you have a, a question here that I think is a, would be a fun discussion. Yeah, so we know in D&D that the outcome is not foretold. It is a fluid story, and the DM and players both interact with the story to create different outcomes. And I was wondering if, when the stream was going on, could something have happened where uh, the party decides to sleep for eight hours and it's the next day. Does that shift in time? Cause we know Delilah would have been successful if the solstice would have happened. The spell went through the image of the whispered one was there. She basically just says it wasn't time. That's the only reason that it didn't work. If they would have waited eight hours of the next day and the Vox mocking to the party still fails and stopping her from completing the spell. How would that have impacted the campaign from there? You're thinking not in, not in the, the world of the show, but in the world of the live stream. I'm saying in the world of just what if we're going to play Marvel's what if, what if Delilah was successful in bringing back the whispered one? Because we know Vox Machina didn't stop her and she was successful in the spell. It just was yeah. the wrong time. I don't know. I was just interested in, having a brief discussion on how different the campaign would have looked had the whispered one been brought back at this stage. Well, I think in one of the like post stream Q and a sessions, Matt Mercer was asked a similar question to this. And I think it actually connects to something to your, this other question that you have about Keyleth and the orb. And he, he his answer was kind of, you know, vague a little, I don't think I, again, I don't think he put a lot of thought into it just because of how things did en end up panning out, but I'm sure in the back of his mind, he was trying to come up with some of these eventualities where I, in the, in the campaign that was the basis for the show, there would have, I think it would have been a transportation device where the party would have been like sucked into the place where the whispered one was residing. And there would have been an opportunity to maybe gather some intelligence, try to avoid a confrontation at your weakened, underpowered state, and then figure out how to come back. And maybe that would have been the direction that they would have gone. I think in the reality of in the reality of the of the TV show, if they had waited a couple of days and been successful, the whispered one would have come back. But you know notice that they didn't mention how he wants he's trying to become a god or anything like that. So this might have just been a very powerful spellcaster. maybe somebody who then they just run away. Mm -hmm. And they try to live to fight another day, and he lets them go because the you know evil entities maybe will will toy with lesser creatures because they're even below their notice. And maybe that's maybe that would have been the trick, right? At that at that level, they weren't really that big of a threat to an entity with the power and the ego that we have. Yeah, because you don't always need to fight. Running away is an option. I thought this episode had a really really awesome and dramatic high point 
for me, or like a dramatic high point, dramatic climax when everybody's losing and Keyleth is connecting with the sun tree and the music swells and then she casts her spell and everything kind of turns around. I thought that was really good. Actually made me a little, you know, got me, got me in the feels. Oh, you're weak. You know what got me in the feels? When Pike steps in front of Scanlan, when Delilah's about to kill him and she goes, don't touch my man. And that little like... Oh, that the anime eye flutter that we get? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah the, I that too. When that Scanlan fun. gets all giddy, yeah. Because it's his first hint that, I mean, we know at this point, all signs point to Scanlan having feelings for Pike. That's the first hint that maybe Pike also reciprocates... Yeah. Well, I think at this in this episode and the one to follow, we get the indication that Scanlan has feelings for everybody. That's true. I <laughs> forgot the, the next episode. Yeah. Uh, but let's just get into the next episode. Let's do it. Led, you want to hit the recap sure. for episode 12? So this is episode 12, The Darkness Within. The party tries to give Keyleth a potion to heal her, but it doesn't have any effect. Scanlan discovers that magic near the orb is not working when he cannot summon Scanlan's hand. They escape from the ziggurat, and as they do so, Grog picks up the sword that Silas had used in their fights. They have a, they, he has a moment with it, reflecting, looking at his reflection in its blade. They discover that magic eventually works back in the acid chamber as they're further away from the orb, but they're out of healing potions. Pike's character faded out and is still gone, so Pike is not here to do any healing. Vax remembers the materials that Keyleth used on her own healing spell to help Cassandra. Scanlan casts a spell and helps this process of these using these materials to make a healing spell. During this time, the shadow and smoke around Percy becomes even more intense. The efforts of Vax and Scanlan and others are successful and Keyleth is saved. But at the same time, the party begins fighting, Percy begins struggling with the demon that is possessing him. Uh, they all start getting in this fight. Percy is hallucinating, confusing party members with enemies, and his sister Cassandra is he's hallucinating that people are threatening her or holding her. We learn through these hallucinations and this inner monologue and this monologue or this dialogue with this entity that this entity struck a deal with Percy and allowed him to create the pepper box or gave him the inspiration for pepper box, which is his, his gun. As he works through this, this struggle with this possession, Percy is about to shoot Delilah, which would feed a soul to this entity. And that was part of the deal. But instead, Percy overcomes this desire and shoots himself in the hand instead. This prompts Delilah to mock Percy for his inability to finish the job. And then Cassandra kills Delilah. Grog throws Delilah's body into the acid bath. And then Scanlan throws Percy's gun into the bath. And as his gun is dissolving, we get a final hint that the demon was basically, the demon was also possessing the gun and was destroyed or was dissip dissipated as the gun was destroyed. We kind of, we cut out of the ziggurat area, the dungeon underneath the temple. We see the party emerging victorious. They reunite with some of the villagers. They are gathering around the sun tree. They talk to Keeper Yenin. They discuss the orb that was discovered at the top of the ziggurat following the brief appearance of the Whispered One. Keeper Yenin mentions how their holy men are going to inspect the orb 
and hopefully it's not too dangerous. We then cut to three men inspecting the orb, and one of them is basically shredded apart by this this orb and completely disappears. Back at the sun tree, Percy and Cassandra are talking. Percy gives rule or or basically seeds rule to Cassandra. The party leaves, returns to Amon through the tree as Keyleth has learned a new spell and allows them to transport via the tree. We cut back to the keep where Pike is back in person. Percy is working on a new gun. Scanlan is writing a new song. In the middle of this, they are summoned to the Cloud Top District, which is where the, the royalty and the elite of the city reside. This is when the sovereign Uriel announces that he's abdicating in favor of the council that will rule Emon for the foreseeable future. But during the middle of this, Vex gets one of her dragon headaches, and we see four dragons flying towards Emon menacingly. And the episode ends. Yeah, my Easter egg in this one, right before Cassandra kills Delilah, she has the line, and Titans will rise. Yeah. That's just an Easter egg for any critters. Uh, I'm not going to really drop too big of a spoiler on that one. But if you've watched the stream and know the story, you'll get it. And it was a fun little Easter egg. Yeah. I enjoyed that. Well, you know, we we know that one of these... Briar was was a vampire. The other one was a necromancer. And they seem to have been worshiping and serving a powerful undead entity. So if there's one thing we know about undeath is that it can keep coming back. It's not permanent. Yeah. So undeath is not permanent. Yeah, that was that was a fun little Easter egg. I picked up on it too as, as well. And I think it's just, you know, it's one of those things where I did like it when Cassandra finally killed her. I was like, okay, just enough with your your monologuing presence. Yeah. Your villainous monologue needs to be interrupted. Too many monologues. Yeah. Really? I mean, this last episode I enjoyed, it was a huge chunk of it was just that fight scene with the demon, the shadow demon. Yeah. So I really don't have very many notes on this episode other than that one Easter egg from a second ago. Yeah. And Scanlan, not knowing that the demon was tied to the gun, which is a stream moment as well just like tossing it in the acid uh but percy gets really pissed at that but if you think about how difficult it was for percy to a create the gun and then b his other weapon was bad news which we saw a couple episodes ago he used once and it immediately broke down so this was his reliable weapon so it's understandable how angry he would become and how expensive uh, that gun was to create and fabricate in, in the live stream, I think two of the barrels were enchanted to do magic damage. I think one was oh, I don't recall that damage, and maybe one was fire or something like that. And that that was another thing that he lost when that gun was destroyed. It, it, it they kind of play it off in the book, or excuse me, they kind of play it off in the show. But yeah, in the live stream, that was that was really pissed off Percy. Really made a pissed off Talison even. Yeah, I would imagine that it did. And that's why we see at the end of this episode that once things have calmed down and then the very, the last scene in the cloud top feels like a time jump because we have Percy almost completing a new pepper box, a new weapon. We have Pike is back. So she's no longer at this faraway temple. Uh, things seem to be at least a month or two in the future. 
At least that's how I interpret it. Yeah, I, I think that. it's it's I think it's fair to say that there's no reason to think that it was you know the next day or a week later. And you yeah. look at Percy's hand, like his the, his wound is covered with a gem, but there's no other indication that it's you know still recovering. Which I don't think that happened. I don't think that happened, but it's cool. It's a like a leather glove with an emerald in the palm. Yeah, it actually, and so I know that this this came out well before House of the Dragon. But in House of the Dragon, we have that with um, Aemond Targaryen. Oh, I'm only like six episodes into season one of. Oh, dude, House you gotta! It's so good. It, do you see where now that where how challenging it is to watch House of the Dragon and Rings of Power at the same time? And it's just like how yes is one and of no. these so much well, better was, than the other. I was so enveloped in Rings of Power that I just wasn't really paying attention to House of Dragon. Mm. I think the last episode I watched was when Rhaenyra has the baby and then walks through the. Oh, so you're still pretty, pretty early yeah, on. I'm like, maybe the, I have watched the first episode of the two new actresses as Hightower and Targaryen. Okay. So there, there's a character in the show who loses an eye and the eye is normally he will wear a patch, but there's a, an occasion where he reveals what's underneath and his eye has been replaced with uh i think it's i don't think it's a ruby i think it's either i think it's like a sapphire or maybe an emerald but it's pretty cool precious gem yeah yeah and it's a pretty cool way to show like this is not your you know this person cares about their cares about their appearance or cares about their presentation even if it's going to be under an eye patch uh and i kind of get the same thing for percy where he puts a glove over it but there's a gem underneath that glove Mm mm-hmm yeah, because I mean, think about medieval times. You have, you shoot a hole through your hand. How easy would it be to have all of that skin grow back? I don't know if you could. In a ma- in a world of magic, maybe. Sure. Yeah, but in a in a real and we shouldn't we shouldn't discount the medical capabilities. We always hear about the leeching and the bloodletting and the terrible ideas. But I, I think there's actually. I just finished watching a. Um, a short documentary about life on a Tudor farm. Some of their medicine would have maybe been effective. I don't know if gunshot through the hand. I don't know if it would have been full use of that hand, but you know, they, they, they knew more than we like to give them credit for. Now they still did have the plague and they thought that diseases spread through smells. So not everything was up to, uh, up to modern standards, but they could have treated, I think they were pretty good at treating wounds, maybe better than we would like to think. Yeah, well, I mean, like I said, it was I have a very limited list of things I wanted to talk about for this episode just because it was so Percy shadow demon heavy. I'll say my last comment before I let you uh, take over on yours. We see this whole season how big of a threat the Briarwoods are. Mm-hmm. Only to be revealed that there is a much larger threat. And then it goes all the way back to episode two of this season when we have Brimsythe saying that the Age of Men is over and the time of the dragons has come back. And what do we get as the cliffhanger for season one? Four very large dragons flying towards Iman. So I don't know. Great way to leave it off. I'm excited for season two, which starts in January. What are your thoughts, Sam? So you mentioned how the you don't have a lot because the show this episode is a lot of Percy and the the smoke demon. I would agree, and I actually it kind of was drawn out a little bit longer than it needed to be. I my kind of my reaction is I get it. 
he's he's possessed they're fighting over it it there were a lot of a there were a lot of different scenes that showed him struggling with this and how the party interacted with it and they had the hallucinations of his family and the people who betrayed his family and and murdered them we'd seen a lot of those images already before multiple times that confrontation could have been a little bit faster it's a nitpick i don't think they it was egregious uh in its length a lot of my comments my thoughts on this episode are related to smaller things outside of that fight just because it did it did have a sense of resolution where percy overcomes the demon shoots himself in the hand the gun's destroyed he's seemingly free of the demon now he's not going to be free of all the trauma but he's free of that immediate threat and now it's just him you know, working on these issues so we mentioned uh grog picking up silas's sword and then staring at him looking at himself in the reflection in the live stream that sword is called Craven Edge, and it is an intelligent weapon that has a mind of its own. It has desires. It has goals. It can it, speak to the it can speak, wielder. Yeah, it can speak telepathically. And I think, technically speaking, it's probably smarter than Grog. I believe it was. Yeah, and and some of the best scenes in the live stream are Grog talking to his sword, trying to figure it out, and because he is so stupid, he misinterprets what it says. <laughs> and <laughs> there's there's one scene of him talking to it in a in an outhouse, <laughs> which is just absolutely hilarious. Because Matt Matt is playing the sword, the dungeon master is playing the sword, and he's playing it straight. And Grog, it's Grog and Travis are just having a great time with it. Because um, well, in that scene too, doesn't Scanlan think that Grog is talking yes. to his poop? <laughs> yes. I, so there's that. A, yeah. So Scanlan's standing outside the outhouse, listening to the conversation, thinking it's much different than it actually is. Yeah. So there's that. And then additionally, the number of times when the sword like sighs or groans because <laughs> Grog is so dumb. Yeah. <laughs> It'll just yeah. be like, the sword will just be like, ah, go kill that thing and then grog will say something really stupid and then matt as the sword will just go ah. <laughs> yeah it's it's it is great so i'm looking forward to to moments with craven edge and grog the orb of annihilation we mentioned the orb that appeared after the whispered one disappeared and how it it basically negated all magic that uh, in a radius around it and then in the end of um the penultimate episode it was shown to completely destroy a person who came too close to it. Um, this was true in the live stream where you have this orb of annihilation. We didn't see anybody have a particularly gruesome end. I don't think we saw anybody have a particularly gruesome end, at least not in the initial appearance of this orb of annihilation, but it did negate magic. And then Keyleth had a very close encounter with it. So this is something, Sean, that you mentioned in a note earlier in our in our discussion in so the idea behind the orb of annihilation is it's basically a mini black hole and it negates magic and it sucks people in and it destroys objects in the live stream keyleth tries to touch it or she tries to i think stab it with a piece of white stone or uh glass or something like that and she had to roll a saving throw to prevent her to prevent keyleth from being sucked into this orb of annihilation and she rolled a natural 20 and in the moment matt says you are so lucky kind of breaks character talking to his fiance at the moment 
Um, and that was one of those things where Matt said, if you hadn't succeeded, you would have taken a lot of damage, maybe died, and you would have been pulled into another plane of existence face to face with the big bad, the whispered one or Vecna in that universe. All which, by yourself. Yeah, all by yourself. And nobody would and nobody was high enough level to come after you, and nobody would be able to figure out what happened without potentially being destroyed by this orb of annihilation. annihilation. So this thing, I think in the live stream, it stays there in the basement at the top of the ziggurat. And eventually, I think they do a little bit more investigation with it, but not much comes out during the dragon plot line. Yeah, because eventually they discover that there's a spell or something that they need to cast to be able to safely traverse. There's, there's a like way, a, yeah, there's a way they can use it as a portal to the Shadowfell. Yeah, it was, I think there was a medallion that they had to get. That's right. That that allows them to change its function. And that's eventually what they, how they engage with it. But that's not discovered for a lot, for some time. Uh, I think I mentioned this before. It, there's a conversation that Vex has with one of the Whitestone residents to, you know, asking, hey, did you see a woman running away? Uh, describes Ripley and they say no. And there's a little hint that there may be future confrontations with, with Ripley. And that in fact does happen in the live stream. She's a pretty major antagonist uh, at a later point, uh, especially with Percy. So that'll be a fun thing to see. And then the final little note I had is the, the one of the final scenes before they leave Whitestone is, is Keyleth and the party looking up and seeing how the sun tree is now coming back into bloom. Now that the Briarwoods are gone and the the threat underneath Whitestone has been ended. And that reminded me of the Rings of Power, when the stranger tries to heal the tree in the orchard. But I think Vox Machina did it better. I'm not going to even go down that rabbit hole. I'm just going to leave that. <laughs> yeah. Because that would make this episode another 45 minutes long. So that is our discussion of the Legend of Vox Machina. We are looking forward to... I think we won't have another episode the week after this, but Sean, what's our, what's our uh, sc- schedule look like for the next couple of weeks? Yeah. So I think for our U S listeners, we're, we're approaching well, this episode will air Thanksgiving Eve, but I am on my way back to Michigan to celebrate the holiday and we'll be traveling back to Washington on our normal recording day. So I think we're going to take next week off for sure. And then the week afterwards, we're going to have some guests come on, but we're going to do an episode or two, a little mini series on Renaissance fairs for December. One of the episodes will be in the entertainment section for sure. And then we might do another one on food, drink, cosplay. There's a whole bunch of different things if you're if you're a Ren Fair goer, but that's going to be December a couple episodes and then we might take another break around Christmas and then we'll hit season two of Vox Machina as it comes out. All right. So that's what we will be doing over the next couple of weeks. Please, as always share this podcast with anyone who you think will enjoy it. Leave us comments on our Facebook page, send us an email, ellsringsnerdythings at gmail.com. Please uh, rate the podcast and subscribe. So you get future episodes delivered right to your door. With that, you all have a great rest of your day wherever you are, and we will talk to you next time we meet.